Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Our reading from God's Word this morning comes from towards the end of Luke's Gospel. And it appears after the resurrection of Jesus and he has been with the two people on the road to Emmaus, they've returned and shared their experiences with the people, with the disciples and the others in the, back in Jerusalem. And we read from verse 36 of Luke 24, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It's myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Is this on? Great. Thanks for that reading, John. It's such a joy to be here with you all this morning. And I've said to a couple of my dear friends who are part of your community, it feels like coming to a family reunion and getting to catch up with all your old cousins that you don't get to see very often. And uh, I have a great fondness for you as a community in my heart. And as part of my work at the seminary, I get to hear about some of the amazing things that you're doing Um, And uh, so, yeah, it's a real joy and a privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I get to speak um, at different churches around the place, and I often speak on Mother's Day. In fact, I have spoken in a different church on Mother's Day every year for the last five years. 
And uh, so often I find myself, my Mother's Day lunch is like some Maccas by myself in the drive-thru on the way back from speaking somewhere because my husband is actually a pastor. And so he always goes, look, your Mother's Day, you've got to preach somewhere else. I'll take the kids. And so Mother's Day, I end up sort of being an orphan by myself off somewhere. And uh, so this morning is a really special morning for me because my husband, even though he's a pastor, he's a lead pastor at our church, he organised someone else to preach this morning so he and my boys could come with us. And so we're all visiting here together. Yeah, it feels it's really exciting. Exciting. And uh, so I said to the boys this morning, look, you parents in this room know it's no joke getting out the door for church, is it? And I was like, guys, the only thing I want for Mother's Day is could you please get in the car by 7.30 and please have shoes on and please no yelling. Like, that's the only thing I want. Some of those things happened. <laughs> Some of those things. I... Uh, yeah, so Jono is the senior pastor at uh, Lake Gwellup Church of Christ, and we live in June Dulups. I had to get my passport stamped as we came across the river this morning. And uh, I was trying to think about what I wanted to share with you about. You, when you have someone come and speak as a guest, you kind of want to know a little bit about them before they speak. So you're sort of like, who, who are you? Do, you? do you have a right to say things here this morning? Well, um, Yvette gave me a much kinder and warmer introduction than I could have hoped for. Thank you, my dear friend. She's very precious to me. We're so excited about being able to minister together this morning because we're often off doing our own thing. So we were on Facebook last night being like, oh, it's so fun. Good to hang out together. But I thought I wanted to share with you that um, I'm sort of a woman without a country. I sort of half belong here and I half belong in Canada. But in fact, I was born in a town in the States called Kalamazoo. And there was someone here this morning who actually has family in Kalamazoo. Is that Michelle? Um, anyway, so that was, a, that was a funny coincidence. But this time of year always makes me feel very homesick for Canada. And it's because at this time of year, the snow is starting to melt. And the little first brave buds of green are starting to come out through the snow, some crocuses and some tulips, and some of the crops are starting to, to come back to life. And it's this profound kind of witness to hope and new life. And here in, in Perth, we don't really get very exciting seasons, do we? It's sort of like a billion hours of sunshine a day all year long. We're very spoiled, aren't we? But this is the time of year when the mornings start to get a bit crisper and you start to put your jacket on and your winter boots. And, and so it always makes me think this time of year of these transformative cycles of the seasons, of this life, death, resurrection type cycle that we are invited into by nature every year. And as I was thinking about you this morning, I was thinking about that word, that transformative word. And the word transform is something that's almost become meaningless to us these days, isn't it? Because we say it about a lot of things. I'm fairly sure I said to one of my colleagues the other day, I find cheesecake transformative. Like, I do. I love cheesecake. And so we, we bandy it about and we say, oh, that's, this will transform you. This will transform that. At Vos, in fact, um, one of our slogans this year for our vocational education training program was training that transforms. Now, I'm cool with using it in that scenario because we actually believe that our training is transformative. But this word transform has come to mean something potentially less potent than it could to us. When I think about the word transform, I think about this idea of first order and second order change, which is something that I've uh, done a lot of work around as a social worker, which is my background. Uh, I see clients for professional coaching and supervision, and we talk about first order, second order change. 
And it's something we do with our students as well when they come to study with us. Now, first order change has as its sort of main idea this concept of homeostasis, right? The status quo. And so first order change says, here's a challenge, here's a disruption. What's it going to take for me to get back to the status quo, to the way things were? Let's just calm the waters down, go back to the way things were. That's first order change, is like a disruption and then a return to the status quo. Second order change would be much more in line with this idea of transformation. And second order change says, here's a challenge to the status quo. What needs to shift, to change, to be transformed in order to respond to this new set of circumstances or this data or these challenges, whatever it is that's been the prompt? See, transformation has at its core a predictable pattern, much like the seasons. And it's my thesis and what I want to put to you this morning is that just like the natural rhythm of the seasons, if we can learn to lean in to the natural cycles of transformation, they can actually bring us deeper in touch with the radical love of God, who is our great cosmic parent. And it can actually bring us deeper into our own freedom And finally, it can bring us deeper into an incarnational witness of the transformational power of the gospel. Because this life, death, resurrection cycle is actually at the heart of our Christian story, isn't it? It's actually, that's the gospel. It's a life, death, life. And so that's why I chose the text that I did this morning. Luke 24, 36 to 53. Now, can we have that first slide up? The second slide up, please? Thanks, guys. I don't want you to miss it because in this, in this passage that we've just heard John read out, there's something unmistakable happening here. What's happened before this, this passage we've picked up? Well, Jesus has been uh, on the road to Emmaus. He's appeared to two of his disciples and they've rushed back to tell the other 11, we've seen the Lord, he's risen from the dead. And here is this unmistakable invitation into a revolutionary shift in paradigm. And the disciples are being invited into into rethinking not just one aspect of their lives, but their entire worldview. Power, relationships, the cosmic order, their role in it, our role in it. Now, if the Gospel of Luke was a Marvel movie, just think about that for a second, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? This would be the moment where we see the big reveal of who the hero actually is except it's not a Marvel movie. There's no shiny cape and six-pack. and it's, it's better than a Marvel movie, isn't it? Is that hard? Is it hard to be better than a Marvel movie? Not really. Yes, it is. Marvel movies are amazing. Everybody be cool. I love a Marvel movie. But there's nothing fancy about Jesus. There's no shooting off into um, outer space wearing a cape and, you know, cool camera angles. He's a hungry carpenter asking his mates for a snack. That's what's happening here. Did anybody notice that? It's actually a super funny moment. Jesus comes back from the dead and this son of God who has fed thousands of people, raised people from the dead, turned water into wine, says to his friends, hey, I'm a bit hungry. How about a snack? Does anybody notice how funny that is? I love this story. I love it. 
Because what we have here is this picture of the universal cosmic Christ, who is in fact the blueprint for the mountains and the coral reef and the architect for the stars. And he's hanging out with his friends and going, hey guys, how about a snack? Could go a piece of fish. And they're like, what? You can almost feel their disbelief in this text, can't you? So let's pause it right there. And let's get curious about what's happening for these guys as they engage with Jesus in this moment. And let's remember for a minute that the death of Jesus just before this had rocked them so completely that what we find here in this incredible, intimate, touching, holy and deeply restorative moment is that they can't even fully enter into it. It doesn't even make sense to them. In verse 40, I'm at that age now where I need to give my, second, my eyes a second to adjust, testify, who knows how that, what that's like. Thank you very much. While they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement. Everything has had to change. You see, Jesus hasn't given them the option in this moment to return to first order change. There is no homeostasis anymore. Everything has shifted. His suffering, his death and his resurrection has left no window open for anything else other than a total paradigm shift. Homeostasis, a return to the status quo, that's no longer an option. These guys are being thrust into second order change, into transformation. That's what it's like for us sometimes in our Christian walk too, isn't it? We would like to maybe have the option to return to the status quo, have a little first order change, just settle things down, go back to the way things were. But often that option is not actually available to us if we're genuinely following Christ, is it? Could we have that second slide up now, please? You see, the start of the transformation cycle is always the death of something that we cherish. Now, at this point, you might be wondering if I've completely forgotten about Mother's Day. And you might be wondering when I'm going to mention it or if I'm going to mention it. I'm going to mention it now. While there's a slide behind me that talks about the death of something that we cherish. And for some of you this morning, that might feel terribly dark and depressing. And for others, it might feel really fitting. The truth is, Mother's Day is an inherently complex delicate thing, isn't it? I thought about how we were going to be able to give credence and hold space for the varying and intersecting stories that we all carried into this room with us this morning. For some of us, we might be facing our first Mother's Day without our own mums, or maybe it's the second or third or fourth. It never gets any easier. Some of us might be mourning the loss of relationship with our mums who are still with us, and perhaps we can't have the sort of relationship with them that we would have liked to. Some of us might be mourning the loss of our children's mum in their lives as a result of separation or divorce or illness, death. Some of us here this morning might be feeling like we're trying to be both a mother and a father to our kids and falling short on both counts. Some of us here this morning might have chosen not to have kids. And so today is another day where society reflects back to us a profoundly family-centric worldview which says... Who are you really as a woman if you haven't had kids? 
For some of us who are mums here today and have wrangled sticky toddlers and exhausted infants into clean shirts to bring them to church, well done. That's not an easy thing. Some of us here are worried about who our kids are texting when we're not looking or wondering where the next rent payment is going to come from. And so the fact is that motherhood has actually brought with it the death of certain parts of ourselves or certain dreams that we held. At the very least, it's brought with it the, uh, the death of a full night's sleep. <laughs> Many of us are still mourning that. I shouldn't. Jono gets up to our kids. I just need to confess that. I don't get up to our kids. I've had a full night's sleep every night. He's, he's the hero on the, on the sleeping front in our family. But motherhood also brings with it this, this real joy of new life, which makes it worthwhile, doesn't it? And it's important not to brush by that because for many of us here today, and, and I'm among that number, we're deeply grateful for our children. And it's, a, and it's a real joy to be able to give ourselves to the task, the holy task of raising them well. And let's not forget those spiritual mothers. And I'm so glad Yvette said that this morning. The aunties and the grandmas and the sisters, the adopted family, women who love other people's children. Oh my gosh, you are everything to us. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We could not raise our kids without you. Please don't stop loving on our kids. We need you to have our backs. This thing is no joke. Any way we arrive at it though, motherhood does bring with it this invitation to a total deconstruction of self of our identity, of our priorities. And that's actually as it should be. That's both the special privilege and the special burden of motherhood. For others of us, the idea of motherhood represents the death of something that we dearly longed for and could never have. Or a season of life which is now over and the excruciating journey of grief and loss that comes with that. Among my close circle of friends and family, there are a number of women who, for many reasons, could not have children, and many who have lost children through miscarriages, stillbirths, illnesses, and accidents. As women, we know a lot about suffering, and we know it in an embodied way. We know about it in our bodies. And I texted and messaged a few of those women as I was preparing this message, and I told them what I was writing about, and I said, I want you to know I'm thinking about you when I'm writing this, because I was. When I think about the grief of these women, the imagery that I have is of enough tears to fill the whole ocean. Because there is something about that kind of grief and loss which has a particular relentlessness to it. It just doesn't quit. When I grieve with these sisters, I'm reminded that Jesus is also the suffering one who grieves with us when we mourn and that he uniquely understands the separation of death. And he has also promised that he's making all things new. It's a potent reminder, isn't it, that we are a Genesis 1 people who live in a Genesis 3 world. For women like this, the death then is of a treasured dream or a hope or a literal loved one and the deconstruction of what does it mean to be a woman and not a mother. Or on days like this, am I still a mother even if none of my children are alive? Or what do I say on Mother's Day to all those well-meaning people who keep asking me when I'm going to have kids? How will that look? To those of us today who sit in that space, I want to say to you, we see you. Your grief is precious and it belongs here today. 
even amidst the flowers and the chocolate and the homemade cards and the sticky fingers of the little ones who are learning how to love their mum as well. It all belongs. You belong. You see, the truth is that there is one shared reality that regardless of our stories, regardless of our family of origin narratives, that we can all share in. And that is that we are invited into a fresh revelation of God's unrelenting, unwavering, compassionate and gracious love for us as his own precious children. See, God is the great cosmic parent who never disappoints us, never gives up on us and is making all things new again, even the things that have been broken beyond repair. The word I had for you as I prayed for you as a church for this morning was the word nurture, which is why I chose this image of a, of a forest for the slides, because a forest is such a tangible witness to the beautiful nurturing heart of God, isn't it? His regenerating presence. Beauty grows up and flourishes, and then in its time, it dies, falls to the ground, and becomes rich compost from which more beautiful life springs up. That's what forests do. So I don't know who needs to hear that word this morning, but I want to hear you say, I want you to hear me say very, very clearly that God longs to nurture you and to love you and to care for you, to flood into the broken spaces in your own heart and life. Perhaps they were left by parents who were themselves broken or a bit careless or doing their best, but it just wasn't enough for any reason. God longs to be your gentle, compassionate, nurturing, transformative parent. I wanted to read you these words by uh, Sarah Bessie, Bessie, who's a a Canadian author, mother of four, and she uh, has had a profound influence on my life and my faith development. She wrote a post for Mother's Day a couple years ago called, I'm here, you're not alone. And as I read these words to you, I I want you to imagine that this is how God sees you. I want you to imagine that these are the words that God is saying to you this morning. This is what she says. I'm here. You're not alone. Shh, now, I'm here. And with these words, I lift a crying baby up and out of her darkness. She's unaware of where she fits in her life, perhaps, but I know just where she is. I'm never far from her, even though to her new mind, I've disappeared every time I'm not in her line of sight. But that's not true. And so when she wakes up or when she's lonely or when she's hungry or just wants someone to hold her, to calm her heart, she cries out and I come to her and I lift her up into my arms. Shh, I'm here. You're not alone. I'm here. I've got you. I've got you, I say. Oh, I'm teaching her something. I'm teaching her that I will always come for her. I'm teaching her that she is safe and secure. I'm teaching her that I'm reliable, that she's believed, that I don't believe she's manipulating me or bossing me. I'm teaching my child that I'm here and that she's not alone. Dry your tears, small girl. I'm here. I'm always here. I will always come for you. I've heard that most of our theology is autobiography, and I think that's true. I think we often project what we learned about authority or our parents in particular onto God. And then we often parent our own children in the way we believe that God is parenting us. 
So if we believe that God is a terrible judge with exacting standards and a trapdoor to hell, then that changes how we move through lives, how we judge others, particularly our children. And yes, I think that damages people. But what if we see God through the metaphor of a mother with a newborn babe? What do we see instead? After all, the metaphors for God's love are diverse throughout Scripture. And I'm often reminded in these tender days, just after giving birth and caring for a newborn, that I'm part of that metaphor too, with my labour and my pain, with my ferocious protectiveness and my consuming love. My entire body yearns for my child. Watch us in these early days, how we curl into each other, how I protect her, nourish her, comfort her, even how I delight in her. You're seeing a glimpse of something divine here, I believe. Isn't this one of the great gifts God has given us? A glimpse into how God loves us, a share of the joy, a sign and the foretaste of the kingdom among us already. God in his goodness sharing with us what it means to love so selflessly, so unconditionally, and so completely. Aren't they beautiful words? That's at the heart of what I wanted to share with you this morning. There's a picture here of a mother with a newborn babe, which is such a powerful metaphor for how God feels about every single person on this planet. That delight, that joy, that tenderness, the attunement to our every need, the nurturing, compassionate other, all the things we normally attribute to the role of mothers specifically and women more generally, have their divine DNA in the heart of our creator. And, by the way, might I just add, are just as ably expressed by men. Are they not? My sister had a baby recently, and I have zero chill about that. I had zero chill. I just wept. I was like, give him to me. I wept over him. My joy was like, even though I know that he belongs to her, all of my DNA was like, mine, mine. He's so precious. And I recently had the privilege of, um, you know, he was crying and I picked him up and said, shh, I'm here. You're not alone. You're not alone. I got to say that to him. And I get to be part of a, a network around him that helps him know that not only will his mum and dad come for him, but his aunties will come for him. His, his parents' friends will come for him. His grandparents will come for him. What a beautiful gift to give a small child. So the invitation this morning and what I want, what I want to invite us into is to let go of whatever we need to let go of from our own narratives to enter more fully into the transforming love of God. Whatever has died or is dying, whatever we cherished and need to let go of, this is a moment in time where we can do that. Whatever storyline we might have which sees God as deeply interested in power or empire building or being punitive or vindictive or cruel or petty or small or narcissistic, harmful, all of these ideas about God need to die. This is the radical invitation from this story, from the Gospels. And this is what we see the disciples being called into in this story. So what is it that they were being called to give up? They were being called to give up their entire worldview. Their entire worldview, their entire cosmology, the way they make sense of the physical and the spiritual world and their role in it. You see, when they were with Jesus, the disciples had been growing in their power and influence and they'd seen Jesus do all these miraculous things because he was unparalleled in his power. 
And they got so carried away with this vision that Jesus was going to set everything right. And in their mind, that meant he was going to restore Israel to her former glory. He was going to overthrow the Romans. There was going to be a military coup. In fact, they were so carried away by that vision of reality that just a few nights before Jesus' death, they were arguing about who gets to be the greatest in the new kingdom. They had completely missed the point. We can forgive them, can't we? Because 2,000 years later, we are still missing the point, are we not? It's still hard for us to grasp because it's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. You see, when Jesus died, all of their thoughts and hopes and dreams about power and glory and safety had to die too. And they had to live through that Saturday moment, not knowing that he was going to rise again. We have the hindsight of history and centuries of scholarship And we're still struggling with this text. It's still blowing our minds 2,000 years later. We have that next slide go up now, please. You see, the next stage in the cycle involves a profound deconstruction, which is both stretching and nurturing in equal measure. And I want to just confess right away that I did not write those words, stretching and nurturing in equal measure. I plucked them straight from the strategic plan for the Vaux Seminary that Brian Harris wrote. He is a brilliant man. He's my boss. It's one of the great joys of my life, getting to serve on a team with him. And this is the heart of the DNA of the seminary. And, And when I read this, I was like, yes, that's what God is. He's simultaneously stretching and nurturing in equal measure. He never leaves us as he finds us, does he? So now we're holding three elements in creative tension. We're holding the invitation to second order change, to transformation on the one hand. On the other hand, we're holding the invitation to let something die in order to allow that second order change to happen. But don't miss the fact that what holds those two tensions together is the nurturing, transformative, stretching love of God. That's what's holding those things together. It's not up to us to hold those things together. We can let go. God has got those things. He's holding them together. Now, these invitations for second-order change can easily be missed because they come to us disguised as our lives. They might come to us disguised as a new job or as a chronic illness. They might come disguised to us as the death of a loved one or a new business model that the Holy Spirit drops into our heart one night while we're sleeping. They might come disguised as falling in love or a child coming out of the closet. In fact, the invitations to transformation are so varied, there are six billion different permutations and combinations and each one has our DNA on it. Now, deconstruction, I'm smiling and being like, yeah, deconstruction, but it is no joke, just like parenting. Deconstruction is painful. It can feel like we've carefully constructed a puzzle from our lives and we've got all the pieces in place. And it's like someone comes along and just gets that puzzle and flips it up in the air and all the pieces go helter-skelter. I wonder if anyone can relate to that this morning. 
that feeling of all the puzzle pieces are up in the air and nothing makes sense. If that's you this morning, I want to say you're on the right journey. That's how life feels sometimes. It can feel like we've gone back to the drawing board, like we're starting again. For the disciples in the story, the deconstruction came with the bitterness of grief and loss of their beloved teacher and friend and the hollowness of not knowing that he would rise again. Now, Here's a hopeful bit that we now know on this side of history. Deconstruction is always, always, always followed by new life. Jesus' words in verse 37 to his disciples ring true. Why are you troubled, he says to them. Wow, really need separate glasses now. (laughs) Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I, myself. He's saying this isn't the end. My kingdom is going to spring forth and no violence or death or destruction can stand in its way. You see, we now know that on the other side of death and, resurrect, uh, death and destruction comes resurrection and the reconstruction of a new, of a better reality. And that's what we call the kingdom of God. It's springing into life all around us. So Jesus sits down with his disciples and he rebuilds their understanding in light of his death and resurrection. And he invites them to reimagine their understanding of the kingdom of God right here in verse 44 and 45. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Who wants that this morning, right? Who wants their minds to be open to understand this book more? That's something worth holding out for, isn't it? You see, it's actually the great kindness of God, this nurturing, stretching, compassionate heart of God, which allows us to experience this disequilibrium, this deconstruction, because he knows it's good for us. Does he, does he cause it? No. Does he use it? Yes. Always, every time. As parents, we know instinctively that we don't want to raise kids who think that the world is all about them. That would be a, a terrible travesty, right? But it's important that they think the world is all about them for a little while, as newborns and infants, that they are the centre of their universe and, and, we, and we cater to that. But as their little bodies and their brains start to grow and strengthen, so, do, so too the developmentally appropriate challenges need to arrive so that they can test themselves and they can grow stronger. And nobody enjoys that process. But if we don't have it, we know that if kids don't get it, they grow into developmentally stunted and fragile and fearful adolescents and adults. Now, Jesus is actually inviting his disciples into a radical partnership in this moment. He's saying to them now, you've seen what I've done, now it's your turn. You've seen what I've did, what I've done. Now I'm inviting you into this process with me. This is a developmentally appropriate challenge for his disciples. He says in verse 48 and 49, you're witnesses of these things. And see, I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. He's literally empowering them in this moment, empowering them. He's not sending them out 
without what they need to get it done. He's empowering them with the Holy Spirit. He empowers us with the Holy Spirit. Let's chuck that next slide up now, thanks. You see, on the other side of deconstruction lies new life, new revelation, and a new paradigm. For the disciples, the new paradigm that they're invited into is one where power gives way to sacrificial service, where the last are first and the first are last, and where those who have held the power have had all of the understanding and the economic and social status in the church and the religious structures and the economic structures of the day, they find that they are the ones who have completely missed the point. And it's the tax collectors and the prostituted women and the lepers and the orphans and the widows. It's those on the margins who thought they were excluded who all of a sudden find, hang on, I'm in the centre. That's the upside down kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in in this moment. Don't miss it, it's critical. Now, this uh, process of having everything chucked up in the air and put back together again, better, different, kingdom of God times, that happens in every single one of our lives. It's happened in mine many times. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit of an anecdote <laughs> from my own story to illustrate this. And uh, it's about motherhood, so it's appropriate. It's Mother's Day. You see, there was a time when my children were little where I used to make all of their food from scratch. It was gluten-free and it was organic and it was nutrient-dense. Some of it I was even growing in my own garden. We had chickens, we had eggs, we had a mulberry tree and I used to harvest the fruit and make pies and desserts and jams. And I would play them bark and read them mem fox and take them on glorious walks in the forest. My children were on a path to enrichment, hippie style, because that's my style. And nothing was going to get in my way. They were on a cruise and I was like their one-stop cruise director. I was like, and on today's program, we are going to... I would like carefully strew like enriching activities around the house, you know, for them to discover because I didn't want to force them into it. I was a big fan of the unschooling movement for a little while. Shouldn't say that at a, at a private school like this, should you? But I'm going to confess it. I said to Jono, let's homeschool our kids. And he was like, ha, 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 no. Because <laughs> he knew I would have to do it. <laughs> and so in my mind, I was like, yes, mothering, bring it on. I'm going to do this. I'm going to smash mothering out of the park. And then, and then, and then. And then multiple, multiple invitations to deconstruction came to me over the last 10 years, multiple. The death of my beloved mother-in-law, followed by a breakdown, followed by a diagnosis of a chronic illness, and they just kept coming. And when they finally started to slow down, full-time work came and study Fast forward to last week, <laughs> where I now like rely on the school canteen. In fact, last week, I wrote a liturgy to frozen dinners and posted it on Facebook. So there's that. Things have changed in my household. I'm not going to lie to you. Everything comes out of a packet. I've had to let go of all of my ideals about being an you know, earth mother. And so fast forward to me 
coming in the door at like six o'clock with two starving kids and three pizzas full of gluten and all sorts of other random things balanced on one hand because I didn't have the headspace or patience to negotiate just two flavours, which is all our family needed. There's only four of us. So I've got three pizzas and my car keys in one hand. And one of my children, since the checkout, all the drive home, has been just bugging his brother, just needling him. You all know the sort of behaviours I'm talking about. And if I'm honest, he was bugging me too. But I was trying so hard to keep my cool. And I'm standing there juggling my car keys and the pizzas, and, and my oldest has his fist up like this. I've got my body in between the two of them. And I, I, what I meant to say to my youngest was... If you don't stop doing that, your brother's going to punch you and I'm not going to be able to stop him. But what came out of my mouth was, if you don't stop doing that, your brother's going to punch you and I'm not going to stop him. (laughs) At which point came the words that every parent, I think at some point or another, probably hears, I hate you, I wish you weren't my mother. Please drive away right now. I was like, oh, how far I have fallen from the days of Bark and Mem Fox. I have had to let go of every fancy idea I ever had about myself in my 40 years. I've had to let go of every single one of them. And I've had to show up and have an honest look at who I really am. As a mother, as a wife, as a sister, as a friend. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's messy. It's imperfect. And there are times when it feels downright broken and raw. I make Brian pastor me (laughs) through those things. He's my boss, but as you all know, he's a wonderful pastor. I walk into his office and I'm like, I just need you to talk to me about some things right now. And I just download and he pastors me and then I can carry on. But it's really important, isn't it, that we have people who we can tell the the real truth to and who can help us in those deconstruction moments because they're important. We need them. In fact, I have had to lean into this cycle so many times now that I've stopped being afraid of it. I've started to trust it and I've started to learn how to lean into it. And I think that's the invitation to all of us here this morning. I actually think that's just what mature spirituality looks like. So this morning, my invitation to you is, what do you need to reinterpret, to rebuild and reimagine? Let's put that next slide up now. You see, reconstruction is the stage that comes next. And this is the moment where we remember that we have not been left as orphans and that nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. God is the original composter. Everything that dies falls to the ground and becomes fertile fertile space for something new to grow, for something better to be rebirthed, just like the forest. So what can we expect in this stage? Well, it's right here in verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Guess what? That happens. When we trust the process and when we lean into it, in reconstruction, we get these aha moments and things fall into place. And then we go, Oh, all of that for this? That was worth it, don't we? Because it's so incredibly rich. In Reconstruction, our minds are literally opened and we can see the ancient pattern of death and new life with fresh eyes and fresh energy. And then what happens? 
what happens then is we don't want to shut up about it. We just want to tell other people, this is what happens if we stay with it. This is what happens when we lean into suffering and pain and let it teach something and and change something in us. We get something better. We get a fresh revelation. We get our minds are open to Scripture in a new way. I want you to hear me say very clearly this morning that there are no tears, no pain, no anguish and no suffering that is ever wasted in God's kingdom. Nothing. Let's put that final slide up now. You see, this last stage where we can't stop talking about it, this is the incarnational stage. And this is where we get to become literally embodied witnesses to the mystery of transformation. Incarnational has its etymology in the word carne, which literally means meat. It's this idea of enfleshment. It's an embodied idea. See, all this other stuff we've been talking about, I love this other stuff. It's philosophical and it's theological and it's psychological. But actually, Jesus doesn't ever let us get away with leaving our bodies out of it. He is interested in incarnational presence in the world and he shows up in this story and demonstrates it. So now we've come full circle and we see Jesus, the blueprint of all creation, going, I'm hungry, let's have a snack. Isn't that awesome? See, in this moment in Jesus, the spiritual and the physical collide. And he actually becomes this nexus of the two together. And the invitation for us as his followers is to also become that incarnational witness of transformation. And this doesn't only happen when we participate in spiritual work, like prayer and and worship and so on. But it's anything we do or we show up in our bodies. It's our work. It's our play. When we plant a garden or write a story, we cook a meal, when we sweep the floor, when we walk the dog, when we play with our children. These are all holy and incarnational things. As we begin to wrap up, I'd like to invite the band back up onto stage because this is where I want to leave us today. I want to leave us in this space where we get to be the incarnation of Jesus in this world and whatever we do, wherever we are, that we get to be part of carrying the presence of God into the world and participating in the building of his kingdom. So what does it mean to be incarnational people? It means three things. We stop being surprised by death and deconstruction and we start to welcome them as friends, as James says. It means that we know that new life is always coming and we know that if it hasn't come yet, that we're in the waiting And we know when we wait for long enough, that aha moment, that opening of our minds moment, that will come if we just hang in there. And finally, we live fully at home with gratitude in our bodies, in the intersection between the physical and the spiritual as incarnational embodied witnesses to transformation. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you that you never leave us as we are, but that you always invite us into a profoundly nurturing and stretching experience of transformation, 
change. Thank you that this isn't some scary pattern that you call us into without having gone yourself, God, but that we, all we do when we show up for those moments is follow right in your footsteps. God, we want to give you thanks for the pattern of your life, for the radical call to give up our sense of control and entitlement and fear and to walk into something so much better, God. We want to give you thanks that you call us into freedom and into a renewed understanding of you as our compassionate, nurturing, deeply loving and kind parent. And for those here this morning, Lord, who are suffering, who are carrying wounds from their own families of origin, who are carrying wounds from their own families with their kids in their marriages, God, we just know that your heart is so tender towards them this morning. Would you minister into those places as we continue to lean into you? And God, as we sing these words, as we declare that you are indeed bringing forth something new among us, would you make us courageous? Would you make us fearless? Would you deliver us into the radical joy that comes with letting go and trusting that you're bringing something new. I want to thank you for this amazing community of believers. Thank you for the work that they're doing in this community. Thank you for the work that they're doing in the world. Thank you for the love that's among them. Would you continue to move and have your way in their midst as they continue to serve you and seek you? So I want to commit them all into your hands right now. In Jesus' strong and mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.